In 2 Kings 18 through 20, the story goes that a great king of that time, Sennacherib, the head of Assyria, came into Judah with a massive uh, army and set the city to a siege. He surrounded it and taunted Hezekiah and the people of God so that they would trust Assyria as their ultimate hope instead of the Lord as their ultimate hope. In this moment, God's people faced uh, really what was overwhelming odds. They lived in a time of serious trouble. More than likely, that time was the context in which our, uh, our soul was written. And that, that time of trouble that they encounter and that we encounter in various degrees, maybe not being seized by another nation, but certainly sometimes in ways that feel mighty intense, we face the real question, how do believers recharge in troubled times? How, does, how do Christians pursue God when things seem to be out of control? Admittedly, uh, we uh, live in a nation where we enjoy a lot of freedoms and we don't have oppression like many both now around the world in places like China, or even, for that matter, in times like we find our text. The question does come up, how do we respond when we experience, maybe on a small scale, uh, some kind of trouble in our lives? Well, the reason I ask this is, how you respond on a small scale to trouble really probably reveals how you'll respond on a large scale. David's mm-hmm. 
first way of reorientation in prayer starts in verse 1 of our text, where it makes this proclamation, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, this is a well-known verse, but notice a few things about the verse and about the whole of the psalm. Notice how the whole prayer, the whole psalm starts with God. God is, is what it says. Now, this is a little bit like the Lord's Prayer. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, we often pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And the idea behind that is you start with God first, even sometimes in the midst of your trouble and trials and difficulties. Why is this important? Well, when we pray in reorientation, uh, we often want to lead with what is true. What is true about God who never changes, even though our world is changing. When life even is full of trouble, we want to start with God who is not the troubled one. We start with him as our source of life. How do we figure out who God is? That's another important question. If you start with God in prayer, how do you know who he is and, and what he's about? Well, that's easy. That comes in Scripture. Scripture, the Word of God, reveals God's true identity to us so that when we pray in any kind of trouble, it's a good idea to start with Scripture. Start with what is true according to the Word of God. I might add, you might start to learn how to pray Scripture. Something I've been doing, I did even earlier with you guys, is pray the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. Actually pray what's in Scripture as prayer. Of course, another option is praying like the Lord's Prayer. That's another way to go. We can come up with lots of ways to pray. But very often when we pray, we find ourselves using our own words when sometimes it might be better to use God's words to reorient ourselves. Now, that brings us to our text. What does this text say about reorienting ourselves to God and who God is? Our text? Well, there's three things that it tells us about God when facing trouble. First is God is our refuge, second is God is our strength, and God is our help. Now, why is he addressing these truths about God? Why is he getting into God as these things? Because when we're disoriented by trouble, we know that we are exposed in some way, we feel weak, and most of all, we feel inadequate. Inadequacy, oh, that's a scary one for some of us. The competency types like me, that's a hard one to swallow. But when you face trouble, you feel your inadequacy. God, however, is our refuge in the midst of that. He is a safe place from danger when we are not enough. He is our resting place. He provides what we need internally and even in our material needs and what we need. God is our strength. He has all power over everything that can occur. He has the ability that we don't have the same to rescue. God is our help. This, by the way, this word help is the same word that describes wives of husbands in Genesis 2. And in other words, God comes alongside of us and overcomes our inadequacies. That's what God is about. What does this look like in life? Well, when I was a when I was in junior high school, okay, that was getting a long time ago. I wanted uh, I went to a pretty tough.
junior high school in Charlotte. And one day I was going to lunch and there was this older, bigger guy who was a football player. I was too, but he was way bigger than me. Who wanted me to get, start giving him my lunch money. And he was doing it under the threat of subtle, not so subtle threat. At that moment, as a kid, even though I considered myself pretty tough, I felt exposed, I felt weak, I felt inadequate. So I went home and I told my cousin who was living with us, and who was significantly older than me, uh, that uh, what was going on, this guy wanted my, was the lunch money. And I told him about it, my cousin, well, he was a pretty tough guy. He went on to become a Navy SEAL. So the next day I went to school and I was uh, on my way to lunch and there was the guy waiting for the lunch money. But out of the blue came my cousin. I didn't even know he was going to show up. He probably wasn't supposed to be on campus, but I was really glad he was there. <laughs> he literally stepped between me and this guy and he told this guy to lay off of me or there was going to be trouble. He defended me as a protector and that guy never came close to me again, I can tell you that. Well, guys, that's what God is for you. He's the one who comes between you and the threat. He's the one who's enough as your refuge, your strength, and your very present help in trouble. But you got to ask, how does that apply to our time? What does that look like for us, for God to be a refuge, strength, and help? Well, the answer comes in the Holy Spirit. When we're praying, the Holy Spirit is a person who is involved in our prayer life. Uh, you know, the word for help in our text today, if you were to kind of transfer it over to, from Hebrew over to Greek, it comes out in the Greek word parakaleo, which is the same word used for the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so in other words, the Holy Spirit is our refuge, our strength our very present help in trouble. God is present with us in the midst of our trials. So when you pray in the face of trouble, ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you. Jesus himself put it this way in Luke 11 when he taught about prayer. He put it like this. He equated our daily bread to the Holy Spirit. If you follow the, that whole text in Luke 11 on prayer and the Lord's Prayer. The first thing you and I need is not food. The first thing you and I need is not water. The first thing you and I need is not safety and security. The first thing you and I need is the Holy Spirit. So that's why we pray, uh, as is commanded in Jude 20, pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray being filled with the Spirit. Longing for God's presence in your life. That is our first job when we feel weak, when we feel exposed in danger, when we feel like we are not enough. Pray, I need you, Holy Spirit. Here's the second way. That we reorient ourselves in prayer according to Psalm 46. Verse 2 says this, Therefore we will not fear... Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, this is pretty powerful imagery in our text. It gives us a vivid picture of what 
um, trouble looks like and can feel like. The earth gives way, mountains move, seas roaring. And by the way, mountains moving and seas roaring is often an imagery in the Old Testament of whole armies and nations attacking an area. Just like the people of God will encounter in our time. But, but this applies to us too. It's also a picture of how life feels when there's a radical change in what's going on. It feels like upheaval. Upheaval. If you've ever faced a tragedy in your life, if you have lost a job unexpectedly, <coughs> if you have uh, lost a close, uh, a close loved one who you really were attached to to death, or even if you had a relationship blow up on you and you're going, what happened to what our friendship, our relationship? You know love what it feels like, uh, what it feels like the world is slipping away. You know what it feels like, like things are wobbly and they're not the way they're supposed to be. Things feel out of control. And when things feel out of control, what rises up in our hearts Fear. Fear. Fear rises up when we encounter trouble that makes us feel small. The psalmist here in our text is calling us to pray when fear rises. And he even calls us to pray, we will not fear. <laughs> what? I'm thinking, is this Tony Robbins? But what he's not saying is not saying do not feel fear. See, feel fear is a normal response to real or perceived threats. Hey, if Jesus felt fear in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he died on the cross, uh, asking God not to put him through the cross if it be his will, don't you think it's okay if we feel fear? The issue is never feeling fear. The issue is where you go next with it. Do you move away from God with your fear? Or do you move towards God with your fear? Moving away from God looks like, well, for men, and even men in most ways, fight or flight. For some of us, it looks like worry or anxiety. Moving toward God, however, is making the fear of the Lord the highest thing, your highest priority. You go to him and in prayer, you bring your burden, your trouble, your hardship, and you ask the Lord to be the Lord and master over that. You go to him with awe and adoration and live and sit with him with your, as your highest hope and desire, yes, even your greatest source of respect above all other men's opinions over all events and circumstances, even the hardest thing that can happen in life, you go to him in the midst of that trouble. This brings us to a very important spiritual question that we all must ask of our lives of the Lord. And this is one that I am working on and will be working on the rest of your life, the rest of my life. So let me encourage you, this is a long-term question to deal with. You ready? When you get right down to the core, 
who you are. Even in Christ, what are you afraid of? What is that one thing that you fear the most in your life? Now let me give you a hint on how to discover what that is. Are you ready? It ties to what we talked about last week. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Really? They go together. And as much as we hunger and thirst for something, that's the very thing that we tend to fear in our lives. For example, if you're thirsty for love, longing to be accepted, to be seen, cared for, and all the manifestations of love that there are, you are thirsty for that love. To feel fear about something would be to fear that someone wouldn't accept you or provide, that someone wouldn't take care of you, that someone wouldn't acknowledge your dignity, your value, and what you bring to the table. And the gospel is right there. Whatever you fear the worst, the most, is where you go to Christ in prayer. And you realize, you realize there that I am loved by Christ with a deep love that endures forever. There's no other thing in this world or person that can love like Christ loves me, like Christ loves you. Love must come from Christ as the God of love is giving it. So, when we pray in reorientating prayers, we start with God, we deal with our fears, even relative to a God of love. So, we're moving our way through the text really slowly right now. You're thinking, are we going to get to this being an angry bee? Psalm 46 goes an interesting direction in verses 4 and 5. Look at this. In verse 4 and 5, this is what it says. After all this picture of trouble and how God is a refuge of strength and all that, it says, there is a river who whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. You're going, what? That seems kind of random. He goes from all this trouble to start talking about a city. But you got to remember, this was probably written in the city of Jerusalem while it was surrounded by a, a, an army of like 500,000 people, 500,000 troops. And they're saying there is a city <laughs> made glad by uh, 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 excuse me, a river in a city that makes glad the city of God. What he's doing in this text is talking about heaven. That in the midst of prayer, what you start to learn is a rhythm of, of fixing your eyes on our destiny, on our chief end as being with God in the universe. And that, that counts, uh, that rather that contrasts severely sometimes to the brokenness of our world. What that means is when you pray and you start thinking about heaven and you're feeling the angst of this world, you struggle a little bit with bitterness. You start to wonder, when will I get heaven? Because this place feels more and more like hell. It's not hell in our world. That's what it feels like. So there's this contrast between this unstable world that we live in in a broken, sinful world and the stable world that God brings in heaven itself. 
And the psalm sticks it here for a reason, to really press us to think about where we're going in the midst of trouble. There's a story about Albert Einstein um, when he was traveling one time to an engagement and got on a train, and a conductor came by Einstein to punch his ticket. And the conductor immediately recognized who he was. I mean, everybody knew who Albert Einstein was. He was a scientific rock star back in his day. The great Einstein was also a bit of an absent-minded professor, so he went through his pockets and he couldn't find his ticket. He kept going around, he got up and started looking around, he couldn't find it. And after a minute or so of this kind of quiet, embarrassing moment, the conductor, who really was, said, Dr. Einstein, we all know who you are. I trust that you bought a ticket. It's okay. Just enjoy your seat and enjoy the so the conductor walked off after just being really gracious at that moment, and a little while later he came back and he found Einstein on the floor of the train, still looking for the ticket. And the conductor said, Dr. Einstein, now, let me encourage you, you don't need to find the ticket, it's okay. Uh, we know who you are, and you'll be fine. <laughs> and then Einstein said the following, he said, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. like losing the ticket, being out of control, and life is right up in our face. In prayer, we move beyond the immediate circumstances that we're experiencing, even our own brokenness and limitations in that, and we look to where we're going and get perspective about how this fits in a larger story for us and for the world. The beauty of the gospel is that we, we have a stable God who is in heaven. And, it make, and there's a river there uh, 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 whose streams make glad the city. Isn't that why it's beautiful? That's a picture of Eden, where there was a river in Genesis 2 going through Eden. And it points forward to Revelation 22, where the new heavens and the new earth will come together and there'll be a river flowing out of the new Jerusalem. And why does that matter? When you have a vision of where you're going, it brings joy in the trouble. As you pray about it, let me explain. Jonathan Edwards says it like this. Heaven is not a static place. It's not a place we go and just everything's the same. Now granted, it's perfection, everything's good. It actually is a dynamic place. And here's how that dynamic thing works. What happens is when we get to heaven and we're in the presence of God, we start to know God in glory. And as we get to know God more, we keep learning about him as eternity goes on. In what he's done in history, of his great attributes, of the bigness and beauty of who he is, who the Holy Spirit is, who Christ is. And as we keep learning, all of us who follow Christ enjoy that together. And as we keep learning, heaven changes. We change. Heaven changes. And as it changes, it gets more exciting. It gets more thrilling. Because you discover more about how great our God is in heaven. How beautiful he is. How glorious Christ is and what he's accomplished for us when everything is done. The wonder of that is heaven ain't a boring place. You 
think it's exciting for the next big thing to come along with music or with a movie or with a new workout or a new fad diet or something? Hey, man, imagine an eternity of instead of things passing away, they just keep building on each other with joy in Christ. That's the picture we're supposed to have of heaven for ourselves as we pray in the midst of trouble, as we seek the Lord. And it's only in prayer that you encounter this with Jesus, that you get a vision of what it means to go from glory to greater glory in knowing God. We are reoriented in prayer to see God and his beauty in heaven, to fear him, not to, uh, um, rather to see him in his beauty. But that leaves us with the last two ways. We are reoriented to God in prayer, the last two ways. And here they are. The first command comes in verse 8. It says, come and behold the works of the Lord. Now we talked about the value of remembering in prayer. Last week, come behold the works, look at the works of the Lord. But fundamentally speaking, 90% of prayer is coming, is showing. And I got to tell you, when it comes to prayer as a practice in your life, it will be inconvenient to make time for it in your busy schedule. And I will say that sometimes you'll do it, maybe for days, even weeks on end, and it will feel like it's fruitless. God will seem silent. I'm going to talk about that in a few more weeks when we talk about Psalm 22. But don't miss the call to pray. Come is what he's saying. Come to me in prayer. It's like God wants us to personally engage him in relationship. Which is exactly the opposite of what happens with prayer in kind of our works righteousness um, default mode. Works righteousness default mode goes like this. Okay, I know I need to pray. Dean says I gotta pray. I'm gonna pray. But that's not what God wants. When he says, come, come, come here. Come here and, and pray. Talk with me. Engage with me in relationship. Let's spend time together. He's calling you as his child to engage him because he's a prayer-hearing God and Father. You realize that, right? When you ask or talk with God in prayer, he's leaning in. He's listening. What's he saying? How can I answer? How can I grow them so that they give me more glory? How can I love them so they just experience me? How can they know that I'm not? The invitation to come is all about us drawing near to God and seeking Him. But you understand, when the scriptures say, seek the Lord, they're calling you to prayer, particularly in your life. Making time for God every day in prayer is hard in our busy culture. But don't you see, <laughs> you're too busy not to pray. You're too busy not to spend time with the Lord. So, God calls us to come and behold Him and to come and engage Him in relationship. But there is one last thing He tells us in our text. 
It's in verse 10. And this verse right here is really key to praying just like this. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. This is another call by God to stop, to pause, and to just sit with him and dwell with him using the word of God. We will talk more about stillness again in yet another few weeks. But do you take time to just stop and be quiet? Do you take time to just listen and not talk? We're going to have an opportunity to do that on January 26th through February the 1st as our next week of Jubilee that we will be celebrating together. But just know, I don't want you to do that just because we're all doing it. Do it for the larger purpose of being still that we might know God. Do you feel like you haven't talked with God in a long time? Or do you like hunger for more of talking with God that you've already tasted? Come to the Lord. Be still and dwell with Him. Consider His majesty and His character and His beauty. Consider what He's done in history. Consider what He's done in your history. You know what He did for the people of God in Hezekiah's time? You ready for this? They were praying for deliverance. And you know what God did with his hundreds of thousands of troops? Almost 200,000 of them got sick and died. And God delivered his people supernaturally. You know what I was convicted of this week praying about that? <laughs> Is how often I try to come up with the way God's supposed to save me. God, please save me, and here are the ten ways you can do it. <laughs> the fact of the matter is my imagination and my creativity and God's salvation and how he can save is so small and so limited. Why not pray, God, save me your way? Thy will be done, even in your rescue of me. Rescue me in your way. The only way you can, I can ever pray with any kind of integrity, be still and know that I am God, is if God moves towards you first. And that comes in our last verse. Says this: The Lord is the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Don't you see? When trouble's coming your way, upheaval feels like it's happening. God is moving in. He's present. Unlike any god in history, typically the gods and even people, for that matter, who run and hide when there's trouble, our God moves in, and He's present with us in the midst of this. What? The psalmist calling us to in this psalm of reorientation is to knowing God in the midst of our troubles, to personally relating with him in the midst of that, and waiting on his salvation, whatever that looks like. Perhaps you've got a marriage today that's really struggling. That's not uncommon. Every five to seven years, marriages go through a cycle of major changes, even sometimes trouble. And sometimes it feels so big, you're like, I have no clue what to do. I'm stuck. Why don't we pray? God save us in our marriage. I don't know what that looks like, but save us. Let's say you um, have a job situation that's really hard. Maybe you've got an oppressive boss. Those are showing up more and more in this age after the economy fell, where bosses have the upper hand. How do you pray and deal with that? 
pray, God, save me in a way that I can be resistful and see in this difficult context. Perhaps you have a health issue. You have a host of uh, things that are uh, dogging you and you can't do as much. Can you be okay with being weak and praying through your weakness in a world that values strength and competence in the flesh? Become a prayer warrior. The power of prayer changes so much about us and about God and takes some steps towards us. He is eager to answer our prayers in a way to work. So, Christ came into our world to make us people who depend on him in prayer. He came to reorient us to know him as our only refuge and strength, our very present help in our troubles. He's come and sent the Holy Spirit so that we might pray and know God as our God. Yes. 